you think that traditional advertising is the path to success for brands today, boy, are you out of the loop. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. In the age of the fickle consumer, driven by social media and the Internet, brand loyalty is in danger of becoming a thing of the past. That is, if companies fail to embrace the new techniques for interacting with consumers that are available to them. The truth is, we're living in a skeptical world, and brands face a big challenge in keeping their names and reputations intact. Today, we'll learn about how to build brand loyalty with modern-day consumers from my guest, Norty Cohen. He is CEO and founder of Musylvania, an ad and creative agency that conducts annual research on the top 100 global brands. He's also the author of a new book, The Participation Game, How the Top 100 Brands Build Loyalty in a Skeptical World. We'll talk about the new way of thinking that brands need to adopt, how to get the attention of price-conscious consumers, how to fend off the Amazon.com threat, and how to avoid advertiser desperation. It's all about cracking the code for brand belief. So here is my conversation with Norty Cohen. Norty Cohen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. I really do want to talk about your new book, The Participation Game, How the Top 100 Brands Build Loyalty in a Skeptical World. But I would like you to paint me a picture, first of all, is what is the challenge for brands today? Well, I think the idea is that consumers are getting information from any number of sources, any number of ways. And there's a lot of careers that were built off of the traditional way of thinking. Most people are now sort of mature in their jobs and expect things to work the way they always have. So the challenge for brands is to bring this new line of thinking into their world. When we talk about brands, I assume we're mostly meaning consumer products. Are there any particular industries or types of products that you think are facing an especially tough challenge right now? One of the things that we see is sort of the way that big beer companies approach consumers they're still kind of coming at it from the angle of 80% of our, of our reach will be with 30-second TV spots. And as much as they might want to say that they're sympathetic to other forms of delivery, they're still spending the majority of their budgets, and, and they've seen a big decline in that industry. Part of it's just where the trend is going in terms of what consumers want. I've watched beer just decline dramatically over the last four or five years. So that's not just a brand problem. That's an entire product that seems to be doing a nosedive, right? It's not like people are going to generic beers. They're just not drinking as much beer, period. Right. Well, I think part of it is, you know, craft beer came in, and they they took up a big part of where it was going. And then I think the other thing that happened with it is that the big beers just kind of kept saying, well, we're we're a good choice, but they didn't really give consumers a good reason why and haven't gotten them involved in their products. That's really the differentiation is, is the context of, I'm going to message you until you change. And they'll just keep dropping as many points on the market as what we call it. The media calls it points. And they'll just kind of keep coming after consumers thinking that they're going to change when really the messaging and how it's delivered is really up to the consumer. 
Well, when we're talking about traditional messaging, isn't it the case that consumers today are so inundated with messages from every possible direction that they're probably not paying attention to most of them at this point? Is that a problem? Well, yeah. No, I think obviously they can curate out anything they want. What we found from the research that we did, and we we looked at consumer messaging over a five-year period and interviewed consumers consistently throughout that period, what we found is that it was two and a half times more likely for a consumer to adopt a new brand or to try something new based on what their friends and family were saying or any other digital sort of influencer versus traditional mediums. And that would include even YouTube ads and Facebook ads. So what other people say is far more important than what you say about yourself. That's really the key message. Well, this introduces the concept of the social influencer, that one, those, that handful of individuals that seem to have more sway over other people than the average person does. I guess that becomes part of the mix today, too, as you say. Yeah, to an extent. And, and we sort of have a little sort of a balance on that. Like in certain cases, an influencer may really play a specific role, particularly if they, if they understand the industry or they're known for a certain thing. But if they're just a generic voice, I don't think that that's going to play out long term. That's pretty much just sort of uh, just another message. So someone that recommended a dress on Tuesday is now recommending a soft drink on Thursday. I don't think that that's going to play out. I think if someone is very specific to an industry, influencers make sense. If they don't, it's really just another awareness buy, and it may or may not trigger that sort of loyalty or adoption that we've been talking about. One of the techniques that advertisers have been deploying in order to get around this issue of consumers not paying attention to traditional messages is more of a subterfuge type of technique, where uh, either in the form of so-called native advertising, where you're not even you don't even know that it's sponsored content, or product placement, where the actual advertising is worked into a storyline, and you see a product there that's been paid for to be there. What do consumers think of that today, and how effective do you think those techniques are? This kind of brings up the idea um, that consumers basically are their own marketers. And one of the questions that we asked consumers directly head on was, do you market yourself? And 25% of them said, yes, I do. So if you're listening, you probably would know that you've probably posted something, and you've probably taken it down. And you said, no, I didn't get enough likes. Nobody thought that was funny. I don't like that picture. I'm going I'm to edit this. Consumers are so savvy to what is a message and what isn't a message that you have to be very careful. So when you start talking about the context of the content placement that you're talking about, if it feels organic and it feels like it's part of the concept and they're reading it and it makes sense and you're on that page and you're in that particular place for a reason and it's more information about it, and it feels native to it, and you go with it, I think it's fine. I think where it falls apart is when you step back into saying, well, no, I have to make sure I cover these 10 points, and this is what's important, and suddenly the consumer's like, well, wait a minute, this is just an ad. So I, I think that the key is they're very, very savvy. Yeah, you're giving consumers more credit for being savvy than, than some others are. You're saying that they're not duped by these techniques. They're just accepting them in the context of what they want to see and hear and, and, and what they will buy, right? Exactly. What about the whole concept, though, of brand loyalty? Uh, there's so much out there and things change so fast. Everything seems to be tied to the concept of fashion. Do you believe that consumers are more fickle today and that there is less brand loyalty or not? Yeah, that's really been a piece of our research that we've been doing ongoing is to find out, do you have a favorite brand and are you loyal to that brand and how important is it to you? 
So one of the things that we have seen is that a high percentage of consumers are more than willing to become part of a brand and use that brand as their identity. So we're seeing big numbers, like more than 50% of consumers that say they've adopted a brand. If they feel the brand is serving them, want to continue to do it, and as well, maybe even join a community or a movement that that brand may be up to. It's a fine line, but sooner or later, that consumer becomes totally integrated with what the brand is doing. You see that in certain brands. You see that like in Disney, where the consumer completely identifies with the brand. They're trading pins. They're willing to pay money for pins with the brand's logo on them. You you see it where people are willing to just literally badge the brand, wear the brand, put it on their laptop. That concept happens because consumers feel that the brand is completely in touch with them and is listening to them. Is that what you mean when you say brands need to get consumers involved in their products? Yeah, you know, I think one of the big trends, and I think you'll see this, we certainly have a lot of examples of it, but even more so going forward is when consumers are allowed to sort of participate in the brand and give them ideas. Starbucks does this. Starbucks has a thing where there's a site where it's like, we want to hear your Starbucks idea. And they've adopted like thousands of these ideas. The unicorn frappuccino came from a consumer. So there's things that they come up with, the consumers come up with, and they go, wow, you know, they're listening to me. And then they make hay with that. They tell everybody, hey, this was just, this came from our audience. That seems to be what works. And, you know, the shoe companies have done that for years where they've allowed people to make their own shoe or they've allowed them to design something or they've asked their opinion. That whole context of we care what you think, we're going to use what you have to say. And when you start talking about pure loyalists, what you do then is once you have a following, you're going to be rolling something new out. You say, wait a minute, I've got this X number of people who have already shown they're loyal. I'm going to show it to them first. And that's the kind of thing that really makes people feel good about a brand. We barely touched on the biggest game changer of all, and that is, of course, social media. You have brands saying, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And I, you know, I, I find myself personally a consumer kind of thinking, maybe I'm not in the right generation, but I kind of think, why would I want to follow you, follow your brand in any of these social media channels? Is it an important aspect? Do consumers today accept the idea of social media as a way to become involved with brands? So one of the theories that we talk about in the book is the idea of attention. And there's, there's a concept that attention is the new currency. Getting attention is really hard. Our attention span is now down to eight seconds. Microsoft came out and said a goldfish has nine seconds. We have eight seconds of attention span. We used to have 12. We lost it around four. <laughs> I wonder where that four seconds went. <laughs> yeah, it's something in the, in the realm of Facebook being invented. But in the mm-hmm. context of that, what what we would talk about is that it's just as easy to give attention as it is to get attention. So what, one of the things that we would go to social for, and one of the reasons that people really enjoy it is people respond back to them, brands respond back to them. So I think it's important to, if you create a channel and you have consumers following you, you find reasons to have conversations with them. I think that's what they're looking for. I don't think they're subscribing to your PR news channel. They're there because they want attention as well, and and they're going to get it one way or another. You talk about the idea of advertiser desperation uh, and how that is a bad look for advertisers. What do you mean when you use that term, and in what sense are advertisers, some of them, exhibiting a, a level of desperation trying to reach consumers? Well, if you think about it, pretty much anything that you click onto where you want to watch something it's going to force you to watch an ad first. 
Mm-hmm. And from that aspect, the industry is truly broken because it, an ad shouldn't be punishment. And this was this has been talked about. I'm not the first one to talk about that. But the context of it is, is is that when you have to keep messaging consumers over and over again with the same message, they basically look at it as noise and they filter it out. They're great curators. They're probably multitasking while they're while they're watching your show or whatever they're they're watching and. And so they're not going to pay that much attention to a message that feels like it's been repeated many, many times and is certainly not personal. How interesting that you should say that, because as far as I can see, traditional advertising up to this point, the absolute bedrock theory of advertising has been repetition. The idea that you show the same message over and over and over again, hoping that finally, maybe after 100 views, it starts to penetrate the skulls of consumers. You're saying that's no longer the case. Right. I call that the sort of military style of advertising where you literally are dropping messages on the market. You fly over the market and you just keep hitting them with messages until suddenly they they make a change in their behavior. This consumer is just way too savvy for that. Well, I mean, I, there are shows that I'll watch on commercial television in which the exact same commercial will appear three or four times in the course of an hour. And I, I find myself asking, how is this effective? Aren't people sick of this? But somehow there's an advertiser out there who feels that that's the way to reach people. And I guess you're yeah. saying that that's not, right? Well, and, they, and obviously they grew up in that, that world. And they're the ones making the decisions. And, and yeah, that's what that's what they believe, that, that they keep doing it over and over again. There's going to be a percentage of consumers going to get it. But getting back to your question, that's why we feel like it shows a little bit of desperation, because at some point the consumer's going to filter it out and you've, you're just wasting your money. But you're also looking like, I have to keep telling you this. Why would I have to keep telling you that? Another negative trend that you seem to be identifying here is I think what you describe as gimmicky tactics on the part of marketers and the way in which those are actually poisoning messages. What do you mean by gimmicky tactics and, and why are those not working? Well, again, I think this consumer is very savvy. So if, if you if you don't have anything real that you're coming after them with or you're simply trying to dangle something to make them feel like, oh, you need to come in right away or you're trying to change your messaging around multiple ways to say the same thing in terms of, you're going to get this free, but pay for that. But that, that whole context of trying to confuse consumers before you actually just tell them what you want to tell them. Now we introduce the whole area of e-commerce, and I'm wondering what impact that has. That seems to have a very threatening potential for brands because the only brand that seems to matter in e-commerce a lot of the times is Amazon because consumers are so price-focused, number one, and number two, so focused on convenience of shopping on the web. And Amazon, of course, beats all others in terms of convenience. It seems like they put those two criteria above the brand itself. Am I wrong in saying that, or is that a threat to brands, and how can it be addressed by brands if it is a problem? So Amazon, obviously the marketplace allows every advertiser to sort of take advantage of all the pieces of that. I think over 60% of households have Amazon Prime. There's yeah. a number, another number, it's like less than 40% go to church, but over 60% of Amazon Prime. So I think the consumer is going to want to use that service, but on the flip side, Having a website where a consumer needs to interact with you constantly and can get updated and you can drive them to a website that has lots of new information and features on it is a really a great feature for advertisers because the more they get into consumer revisiting, they know what they're looking for, they can personalize what the consumer is looking for, they can do email with the consumer, they can have all kinds of interaction. To me, that's almost the same as a retail store. One of the reasons that we see 
brick and mortar retail stores being really noted as popular with consumers, even though they might not be doing as well in terms of the overall financial world is consumer has an opportunity to interact with somebody. And I think websites could do the same thing. You know, one of the things that we always talk about is if you go to a clothing store, generally a good clerk is going to walk up to you and say, boy, you look good today. Look at that. That's a nice shirt. And you, you feel really good. And then you say, you know what? I'm going to buy something from this person. They, they get me. Websites can do the same thing. What's the equivalent on a website? I mean, they can't see you, or I hope they can't see you and say, that's a nice shirt you're wearing while you're shopping on the Internet. I mean, what is the equivalent? They can find out your preferences, shortcut your shopping, get you some immediate response. There's ways that you can do that. I mean, Warby Parker sort of created that whole concept of you can actually get your glasses and they can look at you Mm -hmm. and put your glasses online, etc. So it, it is more about them than just price. You're saying, because if it was just price, brands would be in trouble, all brands but the cheapest brands. So you're saying there is a way that brands can continue to come to consumers with a value proposition that goes over and above simply the lowest price product. Yeah, and the value proposition is I give you more attention, clearly. I'm doing something for you to make your life better. I'm I'm helping you sort of promote yourself and your personal brand. One Mm -hmm. of the things that we saw when we looked at favorite brands was – Man, there's a lot of retail brands and a lot of clothing brands. And one of the theories that we kind of came up with was make me look good, make me feel good, keep me entertained. And those three things seem to be the genesis for where consumers find their energy and focus. And and I think that that's probably more important than, than just price. Well, feel good, look good, entertain means they're going to be spending more time on the website. They're going to have to go past that eight seconds or 12 seconds or whatever. And I guess that is the goal, is it not, to get the consumer to stick around? Yeah, and and maybe you do things that aren't necessarily completely centric to your product. Maybe you create a game for them to play that brings you back to the product. Chipotle, who had all kinds of problems a couple of years ago, has come back with a couple of different games that they've created for consumers to play. One was this idea called Cotto Crutcher where you basically you're making yourself some guacamole, but learning about the product and playing a game at the same time. They did a music mix game where you make some music. Well, the music and Chipotle don't necessarily go together, but it certainly is a good diversion, and it's a, it's a mobile friendly game, and it leads you right to a coupon. Can you draw distinctions between generations? I'm a baby boomer, and so my method of my desires uh, when it comes to shopping would be quite different from those of millennials and Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, I don't know, whatever. But do you see distinct differences between the generations to the point where the younger people today are maybe more accepting of these innovative techniques? Well, I think that they're certainly early adopters. I mean, they were they were the first ones to sort of be born into it. I mean, one of the things that we have to continually remember is the iPhone was only invented like 10, 11 years ago. So there's a huge generation that just grew up sort of intuitive to this entire style of messaging. But I think everyone else is coming along and moving pretty quickly. I mean, my mother-in-law was FaceTiming the other day. I'm like, well, that's impressive. There's a lot there for them to sort of adopt. And I think that the easier the technology gets, I think it will sort of flow through. But I think this younger generation has always been the early adopters for us for the last decade. So when you use the phrase, I think you use the phrase, cracking the code, 
for brand yep. belief. I guess it's not so easy as to say there is an all-inclusive secret code that every brand can use, but there seems like there's a lot of elements to that depending on the type of brand and the company and the generations of people that you're reaching out. It sounds like a little more complex than that. And our theory has really kind of come down to, as we looked at every part of it, what we saw was this sort of concept of participation sort of becoming the great denominator. And the all the brands that were coming into our survey and coming into our, our world as being top leading brands off the top of consumers' head were doing things to allow consumers to be part of their brand and to participate. And that seems to be, I think, the, the factor that is going to make a change for brands going forward is don't talk about yourself, talk about them. I have to ask you one more question, and this is a question that people below a certain age will not know the answer to, but your agency is called... Musylvania. Would you please enlighten us as to where you got that name? So um, I started this agency 14 years ago, and before that I, I was owner of another company that sold out to a big holding company, and I needed to start over again, and I knew this story that in 1962, Jay Ward, who created basically Rocky and Bullwinkle, uh, created this concept that Bullwinkle would have come from Musylvania. He wrote it into the show. Mm-hmm. He uh, rented a Chevy van and he drove around the U.S. soliciting statehood for Mussolini to become the 51st state. He had a Bullwinkle character, a guy with a Bullwinkle outfit on, and a, and a PR person. They drove around the U.S. They ended up on the White House lawn in November 62. They jumped out and yelled, we demand statehood for Pennsylvania. And it was not going to happen that month because it was clearly the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they, they yelled at each other, and they jumped back in the van and drove away. And the PR person <laughs> wrote it up. But it was really a gifted idea. I mean, this was this was the early 60s, and it was the first real mobile marketing event, promotion. The guy's driving around. He's doing all this stuff. So um, I needed statehood for my new agency, which we formed in 03. So we formed Mussolini. Didn't exactly go yelling on the White House lawn, but maybe the equivalent. Okay. All right. Well, the book is called The Participation Game, How the Top 100 Brands Build Loyalty in a Skeptical World by my guest, Nordy Cohen of Musylvania. I will, in the show notes to our episode, link to how uh, our listeners might get a copy of that book. So, Nordy, I want to thank you so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you about this issue of the plight of brands today and how they can stay alive and thrive in the future. Thank you very much for uh, speaking with me. Awesome. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. That was my conversation with Nordy Cohen of Musylvania, talking about how to build brand loyalty with skeptical consumers. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where you post a new episode of this podcast for streaming and downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.